The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, just want to say it, it's, it's always an honor to uh, open up the word from the pulpit here in a Sunday service and, and, and give it to God's people, knowing the kind of effect that it has when it's, when it's preached properly, which is also the burden on whoever's up here to make sure that whatever is said is exactly what God wants to be said. And if you want to know how it works, there, there's a hope that as, as a preacher, as a pastor, that you, you get the opportunity to preach the whole counsel of God, every verse in the Bible, given the chance. Um, if not, there are a, a number of key chapters, key verses in, in all the books of the Bible that were actually given to us in seminary that every, that, that every single one of us hopes for the opportunity to be able to speak on during his lifetime. And so every word of the Bible is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching you about God, for rebuking, for correction, uh, for training you up in righteousness to equip you for every good work. I believe that every word, every chapter, every book. At the same time, there are certain portions that are a little bit weightier than others. And which is why we, we, a lot of times when you have opportunities to preach as, as a guest speaker, as a itinerant speaker, you pick these passages like Genesis 1 or Psalm 23 or Micah 6, 8 or 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Romans 8, 28, John 3, 16, Philippians 3, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 6. You get the point. One of those is Matthew 23. Uh, it was on the list of key chapters and key verses that was given to us. And seminary, and particularly verses 13 through 33, which is Jesus's sermon, last sermon to the Pharisees on the seven woes. And I've avoided tackling this, this passage for certain reasons up to this point. It was back in, I think, October or November when Cliff asked me if I wanted to speak for Sunday service as he was going to be going to Honduras. And so then came you know, the, the paradigm, I think, the thought process as to what, what am I going to speak on and why. And he said, well, you're going to be speaking in April. And I thought about it. And it was in April of 2006, exa- almost exactly 10 years ago, uh, when I received my acceptance letter to the Master Seminary, which is when I chose to give up a, a career, uh, pursuing a career in research science and go into uh, a life of pastoral ministry or vocational ministry that would promise all sorts of difficulties and trials, but that I I believed and I still believe was the Lord's will. And so here we are, April 2016, and I am just about rounding out my first full decade in vocational ministry. It was in April of 2007, nine years ago, when I preached my first full-length sermon. And I have never preached on this passage, but and those 10 years, and a wife and two kids and three different churches later, things do start to crystallize over time. I don't think the same way as I did back then. The things that I prioritized back then aren't necessarily the same things that I do now. Uh, after being in ministry for a full decade, things do start to crystallize just a little bit. And one of the questions that I've been asking myself for these last 10 years and that people have asked me, whether it be in a discipleship setting or a counseling setting or whatever setting, is what is the key 
quality, the, the overarching quality to look for in a Christian, in a believer. I don't want to create a priority list, if that makes sense. God exp- expects us to pursue every virtue in the Bible 100%. Is there a quality, though, that unlocks the full expression of every other virtue in the Bible? Over the years in discipleship settings and mentoring settings, I, I've emphasized different things. You know, as, as a Christian, you have to be patient. You have to be kind. Um, you have to be disciplined. You have to be prayerful. Theologically, you have to be sound. You have to love your Bible. You have to love people. You have to serve people. And yes, all of that, you still preach. We still do. At the same time, is there a particular quality that even James 3 says wisdom has to be characterized by? So even in pursuing wisdom, you have to have this. Even when you pray, when you serve, according to the Sermon on the Mount, you have to have this same quality. And the way you humble yourself before God, the way you worship him, you have to have this same quality. And the way you love people, Romans 12 says, you have to have this quality. So there, there is a particular character quality and virtue that colors every other one, including love. And that is the biblical quality of integrity. When you think of the word integrity, you think of the word integer, which is where it comes from, a whole number, not in parts. It's talking about wholeness, authenticity, consistency in the things you say and in the things that you do. And in in thinking about this as being the key quality, another way to look at it, which is why I'm in this passage, is on the flip side, what is the most dangerous vice that a person could be characterized by? And one that you especially see in a strong Bible-believing church. In the course of his three-year ministry, Jesus interacted with all types of sinners. I mean, you have tax collectors, you have adulterers, you have polygamists, you have prostitutes, you have zealots, the arrogant and the proud, you have demon-possessed, you have Roman pagan guards, you have robbers. And then even with Paul later, this is after his ministry, you have murderers. From all these groups, he made converts and followers. There is no sin that Jesus cannot or will not forgive if you repent. That said, that said, there is a particular group. There was a particular group of sinners who Jesus dealt harshly with. It was the religious leaders who you wouldn't expect. And it's because they were characterized by a particular sin. And it's a sin that not a single person in this room is immune to. You have, you have to be careful uh, as to this showing up in your life. And I tell you what, prepping a sermon on Matthew 23 is not easy. It's basically like going to the hospital, getting every single blood test, getting every single one of your vitals tested to make sure that there's nothing wrong, and you're you're bound to find something wrong when you preach. When you prepare for a sermon like this, that's exactly what you're doing, because you're evaluating and doing inventory in yourself for a particular sin that Jesus dealt very very harshly with, 
And it's recorded in Scripture for all of us to see. When you look at what's going on in Matthew, you have Jesus presented as the Messiah. He's the king, and he's the preacher. There are so many classic sermons recorded in the book of Matthew, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, where you hear Jesus talking about the Lord's Prayer or salt and light, or do not judge lest you be judged, and the wide and the narrow gate, and the golden rule, and anxiety, and judging others, the tree and its fruit, and you have parables on the kingdom of heaven, you have teachings on the heart of man, on the cost of discipleship, on church discipline, on forgiveness, on divorce, on humility, true obedience, the end times, this Olivet Discourse, and then you have this. You have (laughs) this one, which I haven't heard preached in a whole lot of churches, but it was a sermon. It was a public sermon that Jesus gave for not just the Pharisees and the leaders to hear, but for everyone in that community to hear. Throughout the course of his ministry, Jesus had been interacting with the Pharisees, been interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these religious leaders day in, day out. It's amazing. Spend some time in the Gospels. One of the things you'll see happen over and over again is whenever Jesus did something, it says, and the Pharisees were there testing him, pestering him, plotting against him, trying to trap him. Jesus would go somewhere, and not only would the crowds follow, Pharisees would follow. They're there. They don't, they don't leave. And he corrects them time and time again, and it gets deeper and deeper and harsher and harsher. And finally, here we are in the Passion Week. Jesus is a few days away from being put to death, and he knows it. And he interacts with the Pharisees one more time, one more time. And he gives them a comprehensive evaluation as to what exactly he as the judge and the king and the Messiah thinks of them. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. If you want to know how big that statement is, woe means not woe, as in woe. This is woe, as in of all the people in this world, you are the ones who have to be most concerned about misfortune following you. Of all the people in the world, it's you who are in danger. Not the prostitutes, not the tax collectors, not the zealots, not the Roman guards. Not everyone in this world, but you. And in case they didn't catch it, he calls them out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you keepers, you teachers, you interpreters of the Old Testament law, you well-studied, well-versed, committed and zealous and religiously disciplined people. This is equivalent to Jesus going to a shepherd's conference and going up on John MacArthur's pulpit and looking at all those people there and saying, woe to you, pastors, leaders. Misfortune is coming upon you. The people who were there, both the Pharisees and the people who were watching and listening, didn't expect this because they expected... Christ to come as the Messiah, they expected the Pharisees to be partners with him in redeeming the people. They didn't expect him to go and say, hey, those people who have been teaching you are the ones who have danger imminent on them right now. Do not follow them. And it's because of this. Six times he says it here. Woe to you, you scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Not you angry people 
Not you sexually impure. Not you money lovers in particular. Not you lazy people. Not you foolish people. But he says six times, you hypocrites. A hypocrite. An actor. Literally, back then, a pretender, a stage player, when someone would go up and perform a dramatic scene, they would put on a mask. Because obviously, the role that they were playing was not really them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be an actor. So technically, today, Hollywood actors, all those folks, are would have been known as hypocrites back then. They were actors. They were playing a role that wasn't them. And Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, who say that you are the leaders of society spiritually, who say you are close to God. Woe to you, because you are a phony, pretenders. He reserves the harshest denunciation for them. And he wanted all of us to hear. In other words, when he says in verse 1 of Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, they've put themselves as your leader. They have proclaimed themselves as the ones who need to be followed. He says, Beware of them because of their hypocrisy. The character quality to look for in a believer that unlocks all the other ones is integrity. And the most dangerous sin or vice you could exhibit as a believer is hypocrisy. Beware of it. Live out your Christian life with wholeness, with integrity. Beware of hypocrisy because as you see here, God absolutely hates it and will not withhold the judgment that comes to those who refuse to repent from it. And so the question is, there's a general term, there's hypocrisy. What are the signs that someone is one? It's like the person who came in and brought in this huge dog, brings it in to give away for adoption. And the person who's adopting says, that dog has fairly long legs. And the, you know, the worker says, oh, yeah, he's just a particularly long-legged dog, longer than most others. His head is particularly big. Oh, yeah, he, he came from two parents with bigger heads. Don't worry about it. His teeth are larger than my golden retrievers. Well, don't worry about it. He just has big teeth. He doesn't wag his tail the way my terrier does. Well, he's just a shy dog. Ah, sir, he doesn't bark. He howls. Oh, don't worry. He's just not excited about you. Um, Sir, he looks like he wants to kill me. (laughs) Oh, that's just his way of smiling. After a while, you're going to look at that guy and say, sir, that's no dog, that's a wolf. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. And there are seven reasons why. You want to know what the title of the sermon is? It's, are you for real? Another way to ask it is, are you fake? There are seven ways to tell. Jesus outlines it for us. Number one, one of the signs of a hypocrite is that a hypocrite is selfishly competitive. He's selfishly competitive. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes 
and Pharisees hypocrites because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor you do allow those who are entering to go in. What is going on here? Jesus came to preach what? The kingdom of heaven. That's repeated over and over again in Matthew. He is the one. John the Baptist was his forerunner, pointed everybody to him. He is the one who came to preach the kingdom. He's the one who came to bring salvation. And when he came, the religious leaders, namely the Pharisees, began to discredit him. They got jealous of his popularity. They competed against him. They were jealous. They were self-centered. And they went out of their way to discredit and defame him, to lead people away from him. That's what's going on. And in doing so, they shut people out of the only person who could have brought them to the kingdom. Because they couldn't stand the reality that someone came who was greater than them. A hypocrite is competitive with other believers in particular. They say, they say they want people to grow and they minister to people. But as soon as someone else comes who is more godly, who has greater influence, they will subtly compete against him. They'll discredit him. And in doing so, they shut people off from influences of godliness. You have to be very, very careful If you ever go out of your way to discredit another believer, you may be right, but you have to be sure that you're right. Because you could be accused by God himself of shutting people out of someone who could have brought them to the kingdom. In the same way that you should be very careful to endure someone, you should be very careful to discredit someone. The man of integrity, like John the Baptist, says he must increase I will decrease. I'll give up all the influence, all the popularity if that means that the people who are under my wing may find someone else who could influence them to godliness. Don't shut people out of the kingdom because there's someone else near you, around you, who seems to do things better than you. Hypocrites will do that. Pretend like that person isn't doing his job. When in the end, the only thing they're concerned about is that they're losing their followers. All in the name of holiness. Sign number two. Hypocrites are not only selfishly competitive, but according to verse 15, they are culturally legalistic. The reason why I skipped verse 14 is because verse 14 is actually not in the original earlier manuscripts, which is why if you have an NASB Bible, you'll see some brackets around it, which means that it wasn't in the earlier ones, it was in the later ones, so it could or could not have been there originally. But all that to say, the point in verse 14 is going to be repeated later on. But uh, just for the sake of that, we're going to go to verse 15. Hypocrites are culturally legalistic. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice a son of hell as yourselves. What was going on here? They're going around. In other words, you guys are mission-minded people. You're working hard. You're diligent. You're intense. You're going to great lengths to make a convert. What kind of a convert? A proselyte, a Gentile 
who was converted to Jewish culture and traditions, but wasn't necessarily regenerate. They were zealously, these religious leaders were trying to make converts of their own traditions, their own ways. They weren't concerned about people's spiritual state. They didn't care if people really loved God or Jesus. They just wanted people to follow their own traditions. And they went out, land and sea. They worked hard to make sure that that happened. Hypocrites love to promote their way of doing things. They love to talk about their personal disciplines, their practices, how they structure their family life, how they raise their children, how they dated, how they do their private devotions, all their detailed practices, which aren't bad in and of themselves, right? But they don't take into consideration that perhaps God created another person to express their love for him in a different way. Not all families are the same. Not all churches are the same. But hypocrites tend to be real intense in particular. They love to be mentors. They love to be counselors. They love to exhort people with their own rules and their own practices and their own principles. My way is the best way. They love to enforce their church culture on people. And they're less concerned about how people really see Jesus Christ. They want people to be just like them. And when someone isn't, they become wary. They become clannish, only wanting to spend time with people who have their same convictions, their same way of doing things. A man of integrity will not go around trying to make disciples of himself. He doesn't go around trying to promote his ways He doesn't go land and sea trying to pass down his traditions. Rather, he lives for the Lord. He lives in faith. And he allows others to look at the outcome of his life as he speaks the word of God and allow them to make the choice to imitate him. That is discipleship. Churches that are marked with integrity, not just people, but churches are churches that don't try to shove a lifestyle down people's throats. Because they understand, like verse 10 says, do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Make a disciple of Jesus Christ, not a proselyte of your own traditions. Hypocrites are competitive. They're legalistic. Sign number three, they are morally inconsistent. They're morally inconsistent. Verse 16 through 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. In other words, if you swear in the temple, this is what the Pharisees are saying, if you swear, if you make an oath, it's okay if you don't fulfill that oath. But if there happens to be gold in the temple, then you have to fulfill it. And then in verse 18, they say, whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. In other words, if you're in the temple, there's an altar, you're next to the altar, and you swear, and you make an oath, don't worry about it. You don't have to fulfill it. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. In other words, if you see an offering on the altar, then you have to fulfill it. 
They're compartmentalizing. They're creating a double standard. They're saying that it's okay to swear and to lie and to not fulfill your oath in one setting, but it's not okay to do it in another. They're justifying the fact that they don't want to keep their promises. And Jesus says, what is more important? The goal or the temple that sanctified the gold. In other words, why are you making distinctions? Why are you creating double standards? Remember, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And Jesus says then, whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and him who dwells within. Whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, whether there is gold or not, God is there. Whether there's a sacrifice or not, God is there. No matter what your setting is, no matter what your circumstances, God is listening to you swear, so keep your oath. Do what you do, not because of some circum, not, not because of some circumstantial setting, but because God is always there watching. I've learned in counseling settings and mentoring settings, just in relating to people. Not to ask the question. I'm not saying it's a bad question. But because of the way our culture tends to respond to this question, I learned not to really ask it this way. And the question is, how are you doing spiritually? How people are doing spiritually is important. But if you really want to know how someone is doing spiritually... Don't just ask them how they're doing spiritually, and then they can tell you how often they're reading their Bible, how often they're praying, or what they're doing in church. Go ask them about their marriage and their parenting. Go ask their wife about how they are at home. Videotape them at work and at school. How do they study? How do they take care of their body? How do they budget their money? How do they spend it? What are they like when they're, when they're with their parents, when they're with their siblings? What do they do during their spare time? A hypocrite is someone who is inconsistent in the principle he upholds, depending on the circumstances he changes. The question is, are you seeing the same person everywhere? And now there is an appropriate sense of conduct that you have to have depending on where you are. Uh, I don't dress like this when I go to the tennis courts, obviously. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't necessarily talk the same way when you're in a bible study versus when you're at the bowling alley with some friends but i'm talking about principles lying how you treat people your language are you the type of person that creates double and triple and quadruple and quintuple standards depending on where you are are you a different person at work than you are at church and a different person at church than you are at home These are the folks who, when they're with their non-Christian friends, they cuss all the time. Then, when they're in church with Christian friends, Lysol in their mouth, it's clean. Men of integrity do what they do before the Lord who is everywhere all the time in their presence. And no matter where they are, they do not change because God doesn't change. There is a reason why, if you haven't thought about this yet, that one of the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 is that they have a good reputation with those outside the church. 
Because you have to be the same person outside the church as you are inside. And if the people outside have a different impression of your character than the people who you serve in in church, then you cannot get in front of this pulpit and preach. You cannot serve. You can't shepherd. Same person everywhere. That's what it means to have integrity. If a hypocrite is morally inconsistent, a man of integrity is morally consistent. Number four, hypocrites are morally disproportionate, morally disproportionate. Look at verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Those weren't even required in Deuteronomy to tithe those small plants. What they were doing is they were, they were getting these mint, these dill, and they were counting every 10 leaves in the 10th one they would offer to God. So disciplined, so particular. But you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice, you don't treat people fairly. Mercy, you don't care about people. Faithfulness, you're not faithful. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat. In other words, oh, I don't like the taste of that small insect. Spit it out. But you swallow a camel. I'm not making that up. That's verse 24. It's Christ's language. You Pharisees who are so particular about which leaf you put in the offering, and yet a man has a withered hand, and you won't lift a finger to heal him. There's a woman, 18 years, can't stand up straight. And you're afraid that if you ask for healing because of your traditions, you'll be breaking the law and you'll let her go that way. Hypocrites love to particularly correct others on secondary gray issues. And yet they neglect loving the Lord and loving people. This is the man who gets angry when the pastor is not wearing a tie when he preaches because you're supposed to give God his best. As if God doesn't see you in the toilet. And yet, that same man is willing to be dishonest and untruthful about his taxes and his time clock. The people who say you have to go to every Sunday school class, every fellowship meal, every church event. Yet when they go home, provoke their children, they discourage them, call them names, never see how their wife's doing. The people who say we shouldn't be using drums and electric guitars here. We shouldn't sing anything from Hillsong. And yet, you never bothered asking anybody today how they were even doing. And when was the last time you even prayed for your leaders? Like Hebrews 13 said. A man of integrity is more concerned about the weightier matters of the law, like Jesus said. They're more focused on the people than the programs. They're more focused about doing what's right than doing what's trendy. They're more focused about being faithful than being flashy. 
a man of integrity, has a validated reputation for being just. He always does what is right and fair. He's merciful. His heart moves when he sees people in need. He cares for people. He's faithful. He does all that he does to please the Lord. Hypocrites are the other way. They're disproportionate. Number five. Hypocrites are ulteriorly motivated. Ulteriorly motivated, 25 and 26. And this is related to the sixth point, but slightly different in in its context. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I'm looking at verse 25. Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish. In other words, your utensils that you use to serve food are so pretty and so clean. You used every kind of antibacterial soap that you could find. The best sponge and your spoons and your forks and your vessels are the ones that are the shiny ones. But they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. In other words, the food that you put in that plate is putrid. These Pharisees worked so much on looking the part. They said they loved people. They said they loved God. But then they were robbing widows' homes. I mean, can you imagine that? They're robbing widows' homes. They're corrupt. They took advantage of people. They had ulterior motives. Jesus said, you do what you do because you want things for you. You say it's for God. You say it's for people. But it's for self-indulgence. You're looking out for yourself. Hypocrites are corrupt. They're master manipulators. They have hidden agendas. They pretend to have a deep concern for God's people. Yet all they think about is themselves, and they are willing to, in a very secretive kind of way, take advantage of people and make them think that that is okay. They use smooth speech. They use charisma. But they don't care. Because how they're thinking is, what can I get out of this? That is the resonating, resonating quote in a hypocrite's mind what will i get out of him a man of integrity has no hidden agendas he he never takes what's not his he does what he does because he cares he doesn't ask what i what can i get out of a person what he asks is what can i do to give up to give for this person though it might cost me what can i do to meet this person's need, even if it makes my shoulders heavier, even if it means that my life gets harder. What can I do to help another person? Sign number six. And this is, this is the big one because here Jesus doesn't focus on what they do. He focuses on who they are. Hypocrites are pretentiously unwholesome. Pretentiously unwholesome. I went through so many different thesauruses to come up with these words, but they're pretentiously unwholesome. Pretense. They do it for the look. Unwholesome. What you see on the outside is not what you see on the inside. You are like whitewashed tombs, he says, 27, which on the outside appear beautiful. That's what the Pharisees did. 
They had the tombs with dead bodies. And when pilgrims would pass, they would make sure that what they saw was a whitewashed tomb. They painted them. They washed them to make them look pretty. But in the inside, they are full of dead men's bones rotting. In other words, Pharisees, do you remember what I said when I said, blessed are the pure at heart? For you, you focus so much on how you look. And there is an incongruity between what people see on the outside and what the Lord sees on the inside. That's why there's a repetitive theme here. Outside, inside, outside, and inside. You want to appear righteous, but you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness like I told you to. There was a doctor who once said that he, a patient was brought into his emergency room. He was a man in his either mid or late 20s who was close to death, I believe in a coma, or at least close to death, requiring surgery. And it was, it was weird because he saw the guy and he, he was in great shape, large, he was muscular, but he was in the hospital bed. And the reason being, he had used so many steroids and supplements to make himself look physically impressive that it destroyed his liver. There are, there's something going on right now with this booming of steroids and supplements that there are so many young men today who are dying in their mid-20s and 30s because of heart disease and liver disease all to impress, to make people think something about them. But they're killing themselves on the inside. And at the same time, you see these guys who are 60, 70 years old still qualifying for the Boston Marathon. They don't look impressive at all. But they're particular about what goes in. They don't care about what people see on the outside. They care about the condition of their heart, their liver, their lungs. Hypocrites exhibit again an incongruity between what someone sees on the outside and what's actually happening behind closed doors. They will flatter people in front of their face and slander them behind their back. They will kiss their wives and their kids in public and they'll humiliate them in private. They'll praise God lavishly in public and they won't say a word to him when they're in their private room. They'll sing songs loudly. They'll sing all the songs that we sang here but they don't really find God beautiful or glorious. They will preach themselves as an example of purity when at home behind closed doors, they love pornography. They're obsessed with titles, with accomplishments. They are obsessed with saving face. They're concerned about their reputation, not the condition of their soul. They want to look righteous. They don't really care about being righteous. They carry on big Bibles so people can think that they love the word, but they don't open it at home. They'll preach forgiveness of sins and repentance, and yet they will never admit that they're wrong about anything. They'll teach, but they won't do. A man of integrity will praise God lavishly and before God alone will weep because of his own sin. He may close his Bible in public, but he'll open it up in private. He'll confront and rebuke a friend, but affirm him before others. 
They're not concerned about their appearance. They're honest when they're wrong. They don't pretend. They say what they mean, and they mean what they say. They say what they live, and they live what they say. They don't pretend it. They don't pretend to have it all together. They don't put costumes on. There's no Halloween party for these guys. Why? Because they know that the way to the cross was not with a costume. The way to the cross was humble contrition, admission of your own sins. Because they know that God sent his son to die, not because you were pretty, but because you were filthy. And they are unashamed about that reality because that is who they are, and that's why they're called Christians. Sign number seven, last one, finishing up here. Hypocrites are self-righteous. Self-righteous. These Pharisees, they said in verse 29 through 31, Jesus said about them, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have been partners with them in shedding blood of the prophets. In other words, Unlike the Jews in the past, we wouldn't have, if we were, if we were back 400 years ago, we wouldn't have killed Isaiah. We wouldn't have killed Jeremiah. We wouldn't have killed those prophets. We're better than those guys. And yet, here they were plotting the death of Jesus, who is the voice of God, God himself. We wouldn't have killed the prophets, but let's plot and kill the son of God. That's what they were saying. Hypocrites will listen to a sermon and say, someone else needs to hear this. They'll say, I'm above that. I would never fall into that sin. How could those people have done that? A man of integrity knows that it was his sin that put Christ on the cross. He doesn't see himself as above sin and temptation, but he asks for accountability to make sure he steers clear of it. He hears a sermon and doesn't say, hey, friend, I thought of you when I heard the sermon. He thinks in his heart, I need to go make some changes. Every one of us will struggle to some degree with some expression of hypocrisy. Everyone. But if a person exhibits these things comprehensively, continually, consistently, all seven of these things, there is a reason to question the validity of his faith. If you do not take your mask off, God will take it off for you. The worst thing you could hear from Jesus in heaven is when he looks at you and says, you won an Oscar. You did not win the crown. I first heard the gospel when I was nine years old. Pretended to leave the Catholic Church. Considered myself a believer. When I was in eighth grade, I was singing Amazing Grace at home. And we were about to hit the park. And my brother said, hey, just stop singing that. You don't mean it. And I said, are you saying that I don't mean what I'm singing, that I don't believe what I'm saying? And he said, I was angry. Didn't ever ask him about faith ever again after that. 
When I was in high school, a few years later, a Hindu friend of mine, we were in an instant message exchange, said, you're not a Christian, are you? And I said, I am. I've told you that numerous times. And he said, I just wasn't sure because you're kind of bad. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 no. I am. Trust me. A year later, another friend, an atheist. I was a self-proclaiming Christian. Came up to me in class, who I was good friends with, and he said, "Jr. or Julian, <laughs> since that's what I was known as in school, just stop saying you're a Christian because you're going to go to hell anyway. And he said, you're a hypocrite. Every single one of those people was right. And I have so many regrets from the past of people I may have misled, given the wrong impression about what Jesus did and who Jesus is, because I proclaimed myself to be a Christian and exhibited so many of these things. By the grace of God, he saved me in college and brought me here to speak on hypocrisy. Gospel impacted people live a life of integrity because they don't try to look pretty on the outside. They know God saved them from their sins. They don't pretend to have it all together. They don't panic when people realize that they're sinners because they know that Christ paid the price for it. They don't care how other people think about them because they know that Jesus is taking them straight to heaven after they die. They don't care whether or not they get the Oscar Because they know that in heaven, reserved for them is a crown. For all who say, in my heart, I am a sinner. I do not pretend to be anything else. But I am saved, not because of my works. And I'm not going to pretend like I earned my way to heaven. That I'm better than you because I'm not as the chief of sinners. I can say that Jesus Christ paid the the full penalty of my sins. His death was enough to save me. His righteousness is enough to carry me all the way to heaven. A man who believes that will never be a hypocrite. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his words. And speak to us, we do pray that as men and women we would live with integrity, wholeness in heart and life, that we would honor you in everything that we do, including what we think, that we would, be, we would walk in truth, in faith, in love, in mercy, and all that we do, we would seek to please you. We thank you for the salvation we have in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.